Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. That was a first. What? Well, we were ready, but Kirsten wasn't, so we... Kirsten's always ready. We were recording on fresh air. We were speaking into nowhere. How are you, Chanel? Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Hello, Dead Bodies Podcast family. Lovely to have you along with us. Why are you being so pleasant? I don't know. It's in my bag. Oh, it's my headphones. Um, Anything else you want to check in your bag, or are you good? No, I didn't know. I could see a white thing sticking up. It was a bit of my headphones cord. Uh, to, anything to chat about, or I just jump straight into the um, story? Um, let me think. <laughs> Let's just take a moment while Chanel has a think about stuff. Anything good you've watched on the telly lately? Any? I watched Unbelievable. Have I told you that? No. On Netflix? Oh, that's really good. Oh, what's Unbelievable about? Sorry, I just remember what I watched that had It's about it? a girl who. Isn't believed. Oh, that. I want to watch it, but I know my husband won't want to watch it. And you know what he does? He's so annoying because we'll start watching things and then he'll go, oh. He's so, he, That's I, what Nicholas does. Oh, so or he'll go, like, he'll just come into the lounge room, grabs the remote, sits down, puts friends on. And I can't watch any serious, like, I can't watch any yes. murderous shit when he's there. So every time he goes, Oh, um, I'm going to go right, run the tan and go and get a steak. Is that okay? With oh, I'm just going to be out for a couple of hours tomorrow night. And I go, please. Yeah, because then I can watch TV without you going, oh. So I put Inglorious Bastards on the Tarantino movie, which yeah. I hadn't seen. It's a couple mm. of few years old now. And I could just hear him going, oh, oh. Yeah. Like like he was in pain watching it. I'm I thinking, was in bed the other night. I'm fine with the scalping. Reading about death. And Nicholas was like, this is all you do. This is all you yes. do. He's like, you report it, you read it, you watch it, yes. you listen to it. He's like, it's all you do. And I looked at him, I'm like, it's not, it is all I do, but mm. I love it. So do I. And beside the bed, I've got so many murder books and in amongst them is my lovely Sex in the City book. So Kirsten. <laughs> Sex in the City book? Kirsten's gorgeous partner got me a Sex in the City book. And I love it so much. And it's one of those ones. I was thinking it was like a novel of Sex in the City. No, it's like a thing of the first five seasons, and it's got all their what they were wearing and little, little just amongst all the murder snippets from you know the director saying in this scene we wanted Carrie to do this, but she and those are her own shoes, and I love that shit. Okay, and and then my favorite page ever, and and a few times now I've gone to bed and thought, oh, I can't read another murder. I'm just going to have a look in the book, and I. I close my eyes and I just because you can dip in on any page. I close my eyes and there is a there's a map and of I New open York the city. book to my favourite page. There's a murderer standing in my doorway. And there's no murder and sex in the city. Not that I no, remember anyway. Not. No, there's not. Uh, there's a map and all the different things. You know, this is the corner where Big did this to Wait, carry. I told you how my dogs always look down the hallway at night and bark. Do they? Yes. My dog happens. did it they when so it. the beautiful Aish was there who comes and gives him little. You know, treatments to her massage and loosen all these ligaments and things. And she was doing him, and 
when you when she sort of gets a muscle and it's like when you're having your neck rubbed and it yeah. kind of hurt, hurts, but it's good hurt. Yeah. And when she gets a point and she'll keep her thumb and press against it, and when she's loosened it, he yawns. Ah, lets it out. Yeah. So she was doing that, and we we're waiting for the yawn. But then all of a sudden, he just did that. Ooh. I'm looking up, and he was looking up into yes. sort of the, the space in the middle of the kitchen. It's when the head stays still and the eyes move that yeah. you have to worry. And at first, I said to her, "Is that because of what you're doing?" She said, "No, he's looking at something." Oh. And she said, "Does he do that often?" I said, "Well, it is an old house, but I see dead no. people. He it was, yeah, and he was just intent on something." All right, I'm taking you back to am I who's first? You go. Shall I? I'm taking you back to nineteen twenty-two. Oh, way back. Dr. George Eliot Cranston. Cranston. It's not it's spelt C-R-A-N-S-T-O-U-N. I feel like the U is superfluous. You're better at that than me. Well, it's too much. Cranston, I'm going to say. Lived in Hampton, which is a lovely bayside suburb of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Had a very nice house on Station Street. He mm-hmm. was 45 years old and he had been working as a doctor at Bruthen in Gippsland and then Yakandanda before. I wonder if American people just love the names of our places. Yakandanda. I think so. Yeah. And then had moved to Hampton. And he, Hampton's a very well to do suburb now, isn't it? Very fancy. Hampton, yeah. I get yeah. it confused with Hampton Park. Oh, which is not. The total opposite. Yes. Yeah. Apologies to our listeners in Hampton Park, but you know. It's the opposite of Hampton. Mm. Uh, His family went to the local church and Dr. Cranston was very well liked. Another doctor who knew him, Dr. Garner Leary, said he had never met a more charming personality. He said everyone who met him liked him. Mm. Dr. Cranston's wife. Lovely. Mm. Dr. Cranston's wife, Jessie, was always organising charity events and they had five children. There was John, who was 15, Margaret was 13, Robert was 10, Colin was eight and little Belle was sixth. And they had had a sixth child that had died at, in childbirth at, uh, 19, in 1910, a few years earlier. Children all went to Sunday school and then people in the neighbourhood would see them playing in front of the house afterwards. Uh, this Dr. Leary, who was the friend of Dr. Cranston, said that he had had to treat Dr. Cranston once so that Dr. Cranston himself was ill or <clears throat> he had an overinjection of morphia. Morphia? Hmm. What? What's that? They do say what it is. Well, is it morphine? Do Some I need to sort Google of a it? drug. That he'd taken. Must be mm, morphine. And he'd over-injected himself. Okay. So in today's modern parlance, he's a drug addict. Okay. Dr. Cranston had been at that time unconscious for 16 hours but then made a full recovery. On the morning of August the 14th, 1922, it was about 10 to 8 in the morning and 14-year-old Vera Jackson, who lived near the Cranstons, she called at the house for Margaret. Oh, it was Margaret. Margaret was 13. She called at the house for Margaret on her way to school. She rang the front doorbell and she thought she heard Margaret call to her that she wasn't ready yet. So Vera went on her way to school. Then William Hughes, a baker from Spooner's Bakery in Hampton, arrived at the house at about half past eight and he opened the scullery door. Scullery door? Yes. What's that? Pantry. Oh, 
kitcheny area where they stored things or sure. where they prepared food. And he called out the family's maid, Gladys Bayless, who was 22. She came to the door in the hall and she said, and he said later, in a rather strange way, she said, I don't think we'll want any bread today. And he reported later. <laughs> I don't think we'll want any bread today. He said later. <laughs> Was she holding a thing saying, help, <laughs> help? He said later that Gladys Sorry. appeared to be normal. But the baker thought that something was a little bit off because the house was very quiet. Usually when he would come in the morning with the bread, the kids would be running around getting ready for school. And sure. he, was, he was used to taking the day's order from Mrs. Cranston and not from the maid. Okay. Another 15 minutes later, and it's like fucking Burke Street, oh, this no. house. And everyone's there. Uh, 15 minutes later, quarter to nine, there was a knock at the back door. It was a 12-year-old boy. Oh. Sound effects. I did it myself. Yep. 12-year-old boy named Edward Dorwood who lived next door. Edward Dorwood was knocking at the door. Yes. It's good, isn't it? Okay. Uh, he came for the younger Cranston boys and Margaret came out, so the daughter, the 15-year-old, came out in her nightdress and she said, we're not going to school today. We are too sick. So little Edward said, righto, and off he went to school. I can't did whistle. Did you do that? Probably. They used okay. to, didn't they have their books tied up with a piece of string and oh, short yes. pants on? And didn't they have a belt around breeches? them? Breeches, probably. Books? Yeah, yeah, something like that. So the morning goes on, tick tock, tick tock. About half past 10 in the morning, one of Dr. Cranston's patients, Mrs. Breeden or Breden, it's bread with an E-N on the end. Mrs. Breden. I feel like somebody's making up the names in this story, but they are. It they is, are. Uh, do you think? I'm here for it, though. Have you ever read uh, That Old Ace in the Hole by uh, Prowls? What's any Prowls? Prowls? No, but I've heard that. And it's as though when she's writing the book, when she wants to have a character, it's like, and then Mr. Chair came along. Well, you've said this before. And Bert Carpet. Yeah, I know. I'm obsessed with it. Okay. So, Mrs. Breddon had phoned Dr. Cranston. So I gather he must have run the practice out of the family home or in a section of the home. Okay. She phoned him for an appointment for her baby, but no one answered the phone. So she actually went to the house and she rang the doorbell. She says it was about a quarter to 11 when she rang the doorbell and there was no answer. But she noticed that the hall light was on and she could hear the phone ringing inside. Mm. So she peeked through the letterbox slot would you have peaked or not? Yeah. Yeah, I would have. Kirsten? Yeah, I would. Yeah. God, we're sticky beaks, aren't I'm we? Totally. It's, it's a risky move, though, because it's a very obvious move. Yeah. Because what yeah. if there's someone looking like a pair of eyes That's right what there? I mean. Looking straight back at you. <laughs> well, there wasn't. Hello. What she saw. Oh, no. <laughs> was what? What if you what if you open it? And someone stabs in. you in the eye? Yes. Yes. With Is a that skewer. what you were going to say? No. Yes. So she looked in the letterbox slot and she saw the body of (gasps) Dr. Cranston in his pyjamas lying in the hall. So there was a man driving past. She turns around. She yells out to him. His name again. No. David Yelly. (laughs) Alexander Dick. What? The local butcher. And try the sausages. What? And together they entered the house. 
they saw in the house. So I think they didn't go in through the front door because that was still locked, the one where they peeked in. They went around a side door sure. and they saw that the milkman had left a jug full of milk. Oh, they're cute days. When people in the jug wouldn't bought a milk jug of milk. And the newsboy had left a copy of the Argus on the kitchen table, but it was very quiet and all the blinds were drawn. So they knew something was wrong. They called the police, who were there within minutes, mm-hmm. along with Dr. Leary. Dr. Leary is all over this. He's not letting anything happen in the neighbourhood. and He's not there. He's there giving comments about Dr. Cranston. He's there helping with drug overdoses. And now he's here on this day. Dr. Cranston was still alive. Uh, on the floor next to him in the hall, there was a hypodermic needle. What's a hypodermic needle? Is it thicker? Well, just a big – yes, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think it's thicker. In the front room of the house was the dead body of 15-year-old John Cranston and it looked as though he had fought for his life. He was fully dressed as though he was going to go to school. Yes. I beg your pardon, he wasn't dead at this point. He was still alive, but he was dying. His room was an absolute mess. His school and exercise books were thrown around the room. Mm -hmm. There were chairs knocked over. A vase had been knocked off the mantelpiece and smashed. There was a puncture mark on his left wrist. His collar was torn open, but apparently his face was calm and composed. He died within 15 minutes. In the attic... Ten-year-old Robert and eight-year-old Colin were dead in their beds facing each other. They had been dead for several hours. Just as a side note, it would have been Robert's 11th birthday the next day. The body of the maid, Gladys, was found in her room. She had only just died. She was still warm. And the mum, Jessie, and her two daughters, Margaret and Belle, had been attacked, but they were alive. Margaret, the 13-year-old, was still conscious and she was able to say, we are sick. I think my father gave me an injection last night. I think he did the others too. Mm. And Jessie, the mother, was saying, oh, George, oh, George. And little Belle was quite dazed. Apparently she just picked up a book and was just sort of flipping over the pages but not really reading it like in a trance. So another doctor arrived, Dr Christie, and he ordered strong coffee to be given to the patients and hot water bottles applied to their feet. What is that going to do? Probably not much. But in the olden days they didn't know that. So Dr and Mrs Cranston were taken by ambulance to the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the two girls were taken by taxi, which I at first thought was rather weird, but apparently the girls weren't in as bad a condition as the parents. So, Well, there probably wasn't that many taxis going around. Probably, yeah. Uh, Dr Cranston lapsed into unconsciousness before the police would get any information out of him and he died at 4.30 in the afternoon. Mm. Jessie Cranston, the mother, she survived And they had to break the news to her that her husband and her three sons and her maid were all dead. Mm. So she and her two daughters eventually made a full recovery. Now, senior detective F.J. Piggott, if you're ever in Melbourne, he was like the legend copper of the time. Any big case. He was on it. Back in those days, Piggott was all over it. So he was in charge of the investigation. He found a full hypodermic needle in the house. Mm -hmm. He found one in one of Dr. Cranston's pockets. That was a, oh, in there was a broken glass tube marked strychnine. There were four other tubes of strychnine on the drug table and one of them was open. So strychnine is a stimulant. It's absorbed very quickly into the bloodstream and it affects the central nervous system in big doses. It makes it really hard to breathe and then you have convulsions and then you die. 
There was a letter on Dr Cranston's desk that was dated August the 13th, 1922, and it read... It may make it easier for you if I formally acknowledge that I owe you £110 for money lent to me and interest. I have felt for some time that I should have given you a PN for the amount. I don't know what a PN is. Maybe it's like a promise to pay or something. Uh, And if you think the same, we can fix it up next time we meet. There was an address on the envelope, but police didn't reveal who it had been addressed to. So obviously then uh, Dr. Cranston was in some sort of a debt and this was confirmed by the discovery of a number of race programs and form guides in his surgery Mm. and it was discovered that he had often been seen at the track. He'd been to the Caulfield races the Saturday before and there were several IOUs with interest totalling hundreds of pounds, which was a lot of money back in 1922. Um, And adding to this, he was addicted to morphine. So the newspapers reported the case as the story of the demented doctor. Demented? (laughs) The worst domestic tragedy in the history of Victoria. So here's what had actually happened. It was around 8.30 the night before all of this happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Dr. Cranston called his wife into the office because she survived, so she was able to tell. Uh, He told her that he'd been working on a new vaccine for the flu and that he wanted to experiment on her. And she agreed... Hmm, did she? This is, I'm not sure. And he injected her. He then said he would vaccinate the whole family and the maid, Gladys. Um, so Jessie, the wife, attended the inquest that was held on September 12. She wore a black veil. And the coroner found that Cranston, his three sons and Gladys Bayless all died from narcotic poisoning administered by Dr. Cranston, who suffered from brain disease while mentally unsound. The post-mortem on the victims revealed they'd all been given multiple injections, like a pincushion. Oh, do, 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 do you ever see that movie with Jerry Lewis in it where he has injections and then they give him a drink and the water comes? He's like a soaker hose. There's <laughs> water coming out everywhere. <clears throat> Jessie lived on until 1955. So that was in 1922. Yeah. She lived until 1955 and when she died she was cremated and her ashes buried in a grave in the Brighton Cemetery where her, and I used their website for a bit of this, um, where the husband and three boys had been buried back in 1922. Margaret, the eldest daughter, died in 1972 yeah. and she's buried at the Springvale Necropolis and I couldn't find any information on what happened to little Belle. Uh... Just one comment from Dr. Leary, who's all over it and was there and around giving comments. One more comment from Dr. Leary. He said, my belief is that Dr. Cranston was a confirmed drug fiend. Fiend. And had been taking morphia for many years. I think that, added to the fact he was in financial trouble, explains the tragedy. There you are, Dr. Cranston. Wow. It's a bit sad, isn't it? It is sad. I hate injections. Do you know, what's the saddest part of that for me, and I think it upset the people of the day, was that the oldest boy tried to fight back. Yeah, that's always terrible, isn't it? Imagine the shock and the confusion. It's your dad and daddy, what are you doing? Horrible. Gosh. Um, I've got Catherine who has written in. She says, Kia Ora, Chanel. Dee and Kirsten. Oh, New Zealand. Yes. Kirsten being New Zealander again. Did that before. <laughs> Love the podcast. Nice oh, things, nice things. She I says, I was listening to the podcast where one of the dead bodies, what, oh, how am I saying this? 
one our one well she's put in some um obviously new zealand language maori maori language so you just have a have a go at it and it'll be wrong have have a go because our listeners in new zealand will be pissing themselves off well to me it just looks like one now of the Farno family. Anyway, wrote in to tell you about the Parker Hugh murder cases, which Peter Jackson turned into a movie, Heavenly Creatures. Oh, you did that story the other week. One night, 15 ago. odd years ago, the trailer for the movie was on TV and out of nowhere, Mum goes, you know that movie's about our family, right? What? Safe to say, no, I did not, but I needed her to tell me everything. It turns out... She says, I think this is it anyway. No matter how many times I make mum tell me, I forget all the details. It turns out that my nana's uncle married Honora Reaper, who was murdered by her daughter. That was the mum. Yes. My great uncle's stepdaughter and her friend. As you can imagine, it was a wild discovery and a little bit of a party trick now. Mm. Like my murderous great aunt. But I don't know. (laughs) Here she is, the murderer. Um. But I don't know if I should be concerned that no one seems surprised when they learn the murder movie Peter Jackson was made about my family. She's like, no one's shook when she tells them. So other people are going, well, yeah, you're the murder family. Yeah, she says, I've had to take a break from murder podcasts a bit over the last year. Don't do that. Sometimes it seems a little bit too close to home. No. No, yes. come back to us. Grace Mullane, a British backpacker, was murdered here in Auckland, New Zealand almost a year ago. Mm. She sticks close with me, and while I don't know her personally, I can't help but see myself in her. She was just seeing the world and making friends online. I took myself to India on my own and befriended an American up the Sydney Tower on a girl's trip. Mm. He was very disappointed to realise just how gay my friends and I were, that he wouldn't get anything from us. Oh, must have been a bunch of girls together. Yes. Ah, uh-huh, mate. <laughs> Grace was allegedly <laughs> murdered by a man she met on uh, Tinder's hotel room. Oh, no. She was buried in a bush not far from my house. People would have driven past her on the way to get to one of the busiest beaches in Auckland. Mm. Somewhere Grace would have gone while in Auckland. Oh, sorry. Somewhere. Sorry, but that just made me think of something. So in... I was going to correct my sentence. I do. Okay, Can go. Can I interrupt? Yeah. Um, Don't worry about editing that because Dee Dee's interrupting so it anyway. Around the corner from where I grew up lived three families. There was the Browns, the Blacks and the Greys. I kid you not, they all lived next door to each other. I just I used to No, it's not. Oh. That was their names. Oh. It was just by this weird Okay. And I, I really wished Yeah, no. I was like, where's this going? Who are the Greys? It'd be great if like the whites and the, the Greens moved ones? in next door. No, it was just bizarre. We just thought it was great. But anyway, Mrs. Brown was my netball coach and her daughter who mm-hmm. was in my netball team and used to play with my sister and used to come for sleepovers at our house and yeah. with her older sister who had asthma and that was my first ever encounter. Anyway, that's not the point of the story. Mm-hmm. So I had grown up and I was working in radio and had to read the news one morning and it was about a body being found in Frankston mm-hmm. and the body had been found um in the area at the back of a gun shop, I think a bit of shady stuff went on. It was near Frankston Station and she'd been missing for some time and the body had been there for some time and people had been walking past every day going to the station back and forth and then eventually the smell got to the point where they went, we need to. And the girl that was there was um, Michelle Brown, who was my sister's friend who used to 
come to my house and play. No. I never, did I ever tell you that story? No. Why no. has this happened again? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, but I know. And so I had to read the news. Christ. Episode 75. Yep, sorry. 75. I know, sometimes they're too close to home. And you when do I tell shit it, all the I time. Know, I know, but I feel and like... And to make it worse, sorry, we're recording in blocks and we've been here for a while. Yep. I know. It just That just made me think. Well, my memory well, didn't give it to me. And then when the I had to read it in the, the news... I felt really bad because I thought, oh, no, Mrs. Brown, my netball coach, is going to hear me reading this story where I'm talking about her daughter, who was my do- my sister's friend, who is just a body, like saying a body mm, has yeah, been Yeah, what found. about your friends, Kirsten and Chanel, who are also really disappointed to just hear this story now? Took a while, didn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Who knows what else I've got. She was buried in a bush not far from my house. People would have driven past her on the way to one of the busiest beaches in Auckland. Somewhere Grace would have gone while in Auckland had she not had her life stolen from her. What I mean, thank you, Carl, because Janelle just gave me the look that says, you may speak now. Correct. So what I'm saying is I get it. There's a horrible feeling to think because I remember thinking, why did no one know that Michelle was there? Why did no one? And this thought of people just going on yes. with their lives. It's horrible. And the person doesn't matter anymore. Yes. Yeah. I, I get mm. what. Who's who's our writer? Who's uh, this? Catherine has Catherine. written to us. Catherine. Yes. I understand Catherine. Yes. Um, well, she says that, you know, New Zealand's quite small and the alleged murderer is the same age as her. She's got mutual friends with him on Facebook. So, um she said, we've just entered the third week of the trial. The media are all over it. Incredibly graphic details of the alleged murder everywhere. And my heart breaks that this seems to have become Grace's legacy. Mm. Yes, I feel bad about that. Mm. There's a, There was a murder of a young woman in Melbourne. And during the trial, her murder was being compared to to another murder. Oh, you mentioned this a few yes. weeks back. Yeah. And that really struck me that we were uh, reporting it, comparing the these the quality two. of the murders. Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah, it was really horrible. So I understand that that media coverage is horrible sometimes. Um, her parents have been in court listening every day, listening to what happened to their baby. I cannot imagine what they must be going through. I am Grace and Grace is me. Thank mm. you for liking true crime as much as the rest of us. Again, nice things, nice things. She says, do a live show. I love how just just there, just out of right nowhere. there. Nice things, nice things. And it literally says, "Do a live show, Catherine, New Zealand." And then she's emailed again. and She says she's back. Oh, hello, again, yes, Catherine. She said, "I left out dead body stories." Oh, what? I've seen my grandparents after they died. No, I was only six when my first granddad died, Sorry. and I remember not wanting to see him because I thought he'd be a skeleton. Yeah, I would think that's that. That's so you know, cute. Yep. And I used to think all people died with their tongues hanging out of their mouths. Oh, because they're doing the like cartoons. cartoons. Yeah. Now I work in a hospital ward and I'm confronted with death all the time, but it's actually given me hope. I've seen the best of people in death. The people have passed with such deep respect. They are washed and cared for. Each room is blessed by a... She's put a word there that I can't say, but in brackets she's put how to say it. A cormatua. Oh, what's that? Hakuna hmm. Matata. Oh, I watched The Lion King the other night. I did? Yeah. It's made me see that even in death, there Sing are the good song. deaths. It means no worries for the rest of their days. It's our problem-free philosophy. Hakuna Matata. Hakuna Matata. <laughs> I was singing it the whole time. Nicholas was getting really mad. Anyway. 
sometimes my heart breaks and it's awful and horrific and I sit in my car for a few minutes at the end of the day, but sometimes I go home thinking about how good someone's life has been. Yeah. Mm. Yep. And I do that. I read the, um, the mm. obituary notices and they make me feel good. Oh, I'm going to bring you in. Hold on, wait. One of my I'll tell you why. Ever. Because I do stories for work about people always dying when they're not meant to die. Every morning at the coffee shop before I go to court, I flick to the back of the newspaper and I read the death notices because I like to see Betty, who's 92, who's lived a wonderful life. Yes, that's nice. Yeah. That's nice. You know, and all these people love her and blah, blah, blah. There's like five notices for her and I feel nice. Oh. So I skip over the young ones. I just look for the old ones. Yeah. Yeah, yep, but if you see me at the cafe, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> Not lately. You've got your murder books with you. Correct. I have a quick ba- uh, feedback to wrap things up from Beck. Hi, ladies. Nice things, nice things. Uh, I'm on a plane to Brisbane listening to episode 70. You were talking about not having your headsets plugged in when listening to your show. Yes. We were sitting on the tarmac and I synced my headset to my iPad. And I was sitting there listening, I'm assuming to Dead Bodies podcast. But about five minutes later, <laughs> I realised the headset hadn't seen. Oh no, that's happened to me too. And it was just playing aloud. I know, mine does that sometimes. Oh, you're like, connect. Ah, <laughs> oh, Beck, that's gorgeous. All right, have you ever seen a dead body? Here comes Tony Tardio, our handsome and lovely voiceover guy, to tell you how you can tell us all about it. Please do. See ya. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.